Araminta Ross. Was born a slave in 1820 in Dorchester County, Maryland. When she was 12 years old, she was sent to on an errand by her slave master to go to the store to get some goods. While she's there, uh, she there's this altercation where uh, a, a white slave owner asks for her help to restrain a runaway, and she refuses. She simply says, no, I won't help. And so that's not cool. So, so the, the man throws a brick at her head, and she suffers a skull fracture, bleeding profusely. Slaves don't get medical treatment, so she's pretty much left there. Ends up being pulled out of the store and recovers. Um, but from that point on, the rest of her life, she would have terrible headaches, uh, epileptic seizures, and uh, narcoleptic episodes where she'd just pass out. She'd be doing her work and she'd just fall out. And a couple minutes later, she'd get back up and carry on with whatever the task was. Interestingly, it was during many of these blackouts that she woke up with visions and dreams from God. Where during this time, God would direct her, don't do that. Go over here and, 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 and say this to this person. And, and all throughout her life, from that point on, she would talk about these visions and dreams almost to where people were like, you're, you're a little out there. You're a little, you're a little crazy. Uh, one of the things that she kept seeing in these visions was her freedom. Many of us know her as Harriet Tubman. After the Civil War, she, she had a white woman help her write a biography of her life because it was so many things that happened. And the profits of which were to help start an orphanage for, for um, young black boys and girls whose parents were no longer with them. When she was 29, which, which happens to be how old I am today, which is interesting. Thank you. So when she was my age, the visions became so strong that she she went for it. And she, she escaped 90 miles north into Delaware. And there's an account written by the person who wrote her biography of what it felt like for her when she first crossed that, that line into free, into free land. It says, it says, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person now that I was free. There was such a glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields. I felt like I was in heaven. But, and her biographer writes, But then came the bitter drop in the cup of joy. She was alone. And her kindred were in slavery. And not one of them had the courage to dare what she had dared. Unless she made the effort to liberate them, she would never see them more or even know their fate. I know of a man, she said, who was sent to a state prison for 25 years. All these years he was alone thinking of his home and counting by years, months, and days till the time he should be free and he should see his family once more. The years rolled on, the time of his imprisonment is over, and the man is set free. He leaves the prison gates, he makes his way to his old home, but the old home isn't there. The house in which he had grown up had been torn down and a new one had been put in its place. His family were all gone and their very name had been forgotten. There was no one to take him by the hand and welcome him back into life. 
So it is with me, says Harriet. I had crossed the line of which I had so long been dreaming. I was free, but there was no one to welcome me to the land of freedom. I was a stranger in a strange land, and my home, after all, was down in the old cabin quarter with the old folks and my brothers and sisters. But to this solemn resolution I came. I was free, and they should be also. She keeps going. I, I would make a home for them in the north, and the Lord helping me, I would bring them all here. Oh, how I prayed then, lying all alone in the cold, damp ground. Oh, dear Lord, I said, I ain't got no friend but you. Come to my help, Lord, for I'm in trouble. She lived to be 93 years old, which is quite a long life, uh, having gone through so much. She took 13 trips across the Mason-Dixon line to free Slaves. Some reports say she freed over 300. Some reports say she freed maybe 70, but still a, a massive feat to, to never have been caught, never have lost a single, single person in her care. During the Civil War, she was actually she led a, a Union pl- platoon and freed over 700 slaves from enslavement after or during the Civil War. She 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 very well could have come into freedom, into free country, started a new life, gone about, you know, just from scratch. But something propelled her to go back, to live a life of of humble faithfulness, a life of perseverance and and obedience to God, linking her freedom to the freedom of others. Right? We're in a series called Stand Firm, where we're wanting to do character studies of people who've lived a life of faithfulness to God, people who've persevered, who've run with perseverance the race marked out for them. In her life, she was called, and, and, and even in, in her death, she's called the Moses of her people because she, she, she went and led these, her, her, her people out of enslavement into freedom. And so to Moses, I want to turn. Moses was born a slave in Egypt at the time when Pharaoh issued an edict to kill all male Hebrew boys because they were getting too numerous and powerful. His mother, who was also a slave, to save his life, put him in a basket and sent him down the river. He arrived among the reeds at Pharaoh's palace and Pharaoh's daughter picked him up and had compassion and welcomed him into the palace. Uh, one day, this is years later, he's grown up, and he goes out to see his people, to see the Hebrews, and to see the plight that they're in. And he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew man. And, he, and, he, and something rises up in him, and he goes, and he looks around, and he sees that nobody's around. And so he, he runs over to the Egyptian, and he kills him. And he buries him in the sand. And he just, you know, that... You, you, don't, you don't do that to my people. Well, he goes back. The next day, he finds that, the rumor, that, that, that this news has spread. That this, he wasn't able to do this in isolation. And Pharaoh finds out that Moses did this. This Pharaoh who had so much compassion on Moses by not killing him, by letting him live in his house. And so Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, I'm going to kill you. And Moses is like, ah, I got to go. So he runs into the desert. 
Moses flees into the desert where he lives in utter obscurity for 40 years. There's like a sentence in the Bible. Can you imagine? That's the summary of his life. 40 years. Just, that's it. Who knows what happened? He's in, he's in the land of Midian. He's in the, the far country. And God appears to him while he's, while he's shepherding the sheep. He's 80 years old, shepherding sheep. And God appears to him in a bush that's burning but not being consumed. It's the burning bush. And, and God says to him, I've heard the cries of my people and I see their oppression. And I'm sending you back into Egypt to bring them out of slavery. I have a... This is what he says. I'm sending you to Pharaoh bring, to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So Moses here is picking up a story that started before his life. God, God chooses Abraham to, to bear his name and to represent him in the earth. He says, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's what he says to Abraham, Genesis 12, the very beginning of the Bible. So, so Abraham and his descendants, it's all recorded in the book of Genesis. They eventually land up in Egypt because there's a famine in the land of Canaan. Their, their, their temporary stay in Egypt turns into slavery, where they're there for hundreds of years. At which point, God sends Moses back into Egypt to pull his people out so that the same promise to Abraham can be picked back up. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Because I'm going to let you bear my name. I'm going to show you what it looks like to live under my reign as king. And then, then the nations will see what God is like. Well, we know that, um, that Israel didn't do so well in this in this job that they were given to bear God's name and to represent Him and to live faithfully to the covenant that He makes with them in the wilderness. But God remains faithful to His covenant with the Israelites. But to think, to think of Moses, right, in the same way, he's out in Midian, he's got a wife, he's got a family. He could have very well lived in Midian, saw the burning bush, not turned aside. He didn't have to turn aside at this site. He could have kept going. That's weird, but maybe I'm tired. That's you know, he, but something propelled him to live a life of humble faithfulness and obedience to God. To, to link his freedom to the freedom of his people. And to go back into Egypt to pull the people and to deliver the people out. And God definitely equipped him and gave him the powers and the, and the miracles and the wonders to perform in Egypt to deliver his people miraculously. From the land. And, and really, as I was looking at it, there's so much that can be said about Moses. It's like, oh, I'm re- trying to flip through the, the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. I'm like, what stories do I pick? It's a million stories about this man. He's literally like the, the central figure in the Old Testament. But, but I found there's this passage in the New Testament that looks back to Moses that I think is, is brilliant. And and that's where I want to go. This is Hebrews 11. Right around the middle. This is the the hall of faith. This is where where the the writer of Hebrews is listing all these people who by faith they did this and by faith they did that. And and now they're a great cloud of witnesses and they're cheering us on. 
It says this in Hebrews 11, starting in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. These were all, and then, and then it skips ahead a couple verses. He's, all the people he's mentioning. He says, these, all these people were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect, or would they be made whole, or would they be made complete. And it carries right through to Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all these people, all these people have gone before us who walked faithfully with God. Let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, he scorning, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Gosh, I love this passage because it just, it's, it's, it gives perspective to, to, to the, the life that we're called to, this life of, of obedience and faithfulness to God, where we, we, can, we can sometimes think that we're, we find ourselves in this, in this cultural moment that we're in and we just kind of have to just make our way and try to figure it out. But to think, man, there's, there's a, a cloud of witnesses, all who have gone before us. The saints from the Old Testament all the way through from the, from the, from the early church where this was written all the way through, through, through all the seasons that, that, that this world has been in, in up, to, up until right now, there's, there's, a, there's a crowd of witnesses that are, that are sitting at the edge of their seat looking to see how the church is going to respond. Looking to see, what are we going to do in this moment? We know what God's going to do. He's, he's, he's in the work of restoring creation, redeeming all things. He's coming again. But what, what are we going to do? I want to, I want to look at two, like several things. I don't know how many. In this passage um, that we just read. The one is... Let's see what's next here. I don't want to read that yet. Don't read that. Um, the first one is that he refuses to be known. It's interesting. He refuses to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. All the, all the favor that he got, all the privilege that he, he was raised, a Hebrew boy, in the king's palace with all the best meats and all the best favors and privileges. He was raised as a prince. Yet he refused to be known on the basis of his privileges. He refused to be known on the basis of what was handed to him. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God who were enslaved rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. There's an interesting verse in James 4 that says it a little bit more bluntly. James 4.17 says, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. 
So we, we, we know pretty well how to understand sin by something that I did that I shouldn't have done. Okay, I did this thing. I know I shouldn't have done it. I feel guilty about it. I go to the Lord. I confess my sin. He forgives me. I feel better. Whatever, whatever method we have in our head. But here James is saying, you don't, it's not that easy. There's more at play here. Your sin is more insidious than you realize. If anyone knows that they should be doing something, but they don't do it, that's, that's actually sin. You, could, you can convince yourself out of it, you could justify it, you could walk yourself backwards, but in your own heart, when you know you should be saying something, when you know you should be doing something, when you know you should have a response that's godly, and you choose to opt out, you choose to stay passive, you choose to not say anything, that's, he's saying that's sin. So Moses here is saying, hey, I could have, I could have just stayed in the palace, man. I could have I could have just not engaged with the, with, the, with the issues. I could have not made this a deal that I had to get involved in. I had the privilege to do that. Right? I, had, I had the ability to not deal with this mess. But rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin, which is how Moses is, is, is seeing it, he's, he's, I, choo- I chose to be mistreated along with the, with the people of God. And so I'll just, I'll just say it in a, in a way that, that we can all kind of deal with. If, if in this, when I say this moment, I'm kind of beating around the bush, in this moment of racial tension, in this moment of, of political craziness, where, where you're being you feel like you need to, you're being pulled in every direction and you need to take a stand or you need to say that's wrong or this is wrong. You're, you don't, it's like, where do I go? Where do, where, what, what posture am I supposed to take in all this? If, if there's something that you aren't doing that you know in your heart that you should be doing, something you're not saying that you know in your heart you should be saying, this is, this, there's, a, there's, a, there's a word for you here and the Bible is saying that you're sinning by not doing the things that you know you should be doing. So wherever that sits with you, however you're, wherever that lands in your life, with, with all the stuff that's happening in our world, I want you to hear that. And then, and then this, this passage talks about this idea of a promise. It's, it's, so, it's kind of elusive. What are you referring to, Hebrew writer? It says, all these people that we're looking to, to, for, you know, we're encouraged by them, we're, we're, we're challenged by their life and their faithfulness. It says, none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. I think there's several things at play here. But the promise we can look to and say the promise is Jesus. The promise is, is the coming of the Messiah who would bring a, 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 a new reality into the world. A new way of being human. A new way of, of living as the people of God where, where walls are broken down, where true, where true peace is able to flood in. What he's talking about, the promise is, is the good news for all people. 
It's the gospel. And I think sometimes we think of, we can, we think of Jesus and what he's done for us personally. And we, and we find a way to, not even intentionally, but divorce it from the essence of, of what, it, what it means for his full reign, his full kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Like we're praying for his return, but in the meantime I have my personal salvation. I have my personal relationship with God and then I have my personal discipleship and maybe I want to mentor others and lead others. But what I want us to think about is that there's good news that Jesus came to bear. He came to preach. He came to, to, to showcase in his life. And he brought it for, for, for all people. I've heard it said, and I'm, I'm challenged by this idea, that if the good news of the gospel isn't good news for the oppressed, for the marginalized, for the poor, then it's not good news. Because Jesus came to bring good news for the poor, for the oppressed, for the marginalized. And we, we're in this interesting place because we see in the life of Moses that he was born a slave, was given privileges, but chose to be mistreated. Kind of going back to his identity as, as, the people, as, the, as an Israelite. And it's, it's something that, that it's, that's hard to, to talk about or to think through because it feels like an indictment. But for those of us in the room who have, uh, who have white skin, there's, there's a sense of, of, of maybe missing some of, the, some of the essence of Jesus coming to bring good news for the poor. Because, because of just the, 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 the climate that we're in and the way that, that things have, have uh, benefited us, it's, it's, it's inherently offensive for, for, for so many of us. To, for, I'm even having a hard time talking about this because my, it's hard to find the right words to try to make everybody understand or, 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 or hear me. But, but what, I'm, what I'm trying to get to is something I care deeply about. And it's this idea that the gospel is so much bigger than our personal salvation. It's this idea that the gospel inherent in the good news itself is God redeeming people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be under the one Lord Jesus who reigns as king and who shows us together a new way to live as humans, as people, under his reign, which which looks like self-emptying, self-giving, humbling ourselves, being, being conformed to his image, which is which is utter privilege giving itself away in love toward humanity. We very well could live, just like Moses could very well have lived in Midian, just like Harriet could very well have lived as a free person in the north, we very well could live not talking about these things, not having to deal with this stuff, not having to see that that there's, a, there's, an issue, there's, a, there's, a, there's an issue of, of, of racial inequality in our country. And there's different angles on it. And I know it's nuanced. I know it's complicated. But it doesn't mean we don't talk about it. That means even more of a reason to talk about it. Because it's complicated. And because it's hard to talk about. And, um, 
And so we very well could live on with our church services and our personal relationships with God. But something is propelling me, and I hope it's propelling you, about the centrality of seeing the work of reconciliation as central to the gospel. Here's a quote that I find challenging, and it will challenge us. Uh, Oops, wrong way. This is a quote from a pastor in New York City of a multi-ethnic church that that I really respect. He says, "The, The deep trouble the church, in many respects the white church, finds itself in related to race stems from a bad theology that sees racial justice and reconciliation as optional to the gospel. The point of concern must be regularly repeated in our day. As long as the gospel is reduced to a personal decision resulting in private discipleship and a self-centered preoccupation, we will tragically miss the core of the gospel, which is a declaration of Jesus' lordship resulting in a new family called from different places in life, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That, that, that it's not just whoever wants to can come, but I have something in me that propels me to fight to see all people come to be united in the household of God. And that's what I want to, to, to stir in us, that there's something inherent to the Spirit of God in you that should propel you to see when we, when we read Revelation 7 and every tribe, tongue, and nation is worshiping around the throne, that's what we want our lives to look like. That's what we want our communities to look like. And it's, and it's one step at a time. He, the passage in Hebrews talks about running a race. Now, I've started to run recently. I'm not very, not very far, but enough miles to know that, if, that if, I, if I start my running and I'm pumped up and, I'm just, and I start running too fast, like off the get, I'm going to be fatigued really quickly. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be panting after like a quarter mile. But we're called to run the race with perseverance. That means I have a long range of view. That means I'm not just kind of reacting to everything that's coming up as if it's the next best thing and the next thing I have to post about or care about. But I'm seeing that there's a long range view at play here. And I'm running strategically. And I'm running diligently in a direction. And we need to know which direction we're running. Right? If the call is to persevere in running the race marked out for us, which is what this passage in Hebrews talks about, we need to know which direction we're running. Okay, we're running towards Jesus. We're running Godward. Okay, the question then is where is Jesus? If I'm running towards Jesus, I'm running, I'm praising, I'm praying, I'm knowing Him more, I'm doing all these things that we love that are great. But in the midst of all the craziness, where is Jesus? Here's here's what I want to submit to you. He's tending wounds. He's healing hurts. He's calling out religious self-righteousness. He's willing to be misunderstood and associate with sinners. He's reconciling the world to himself. And he's giving us the word of reconciliation. He's giving us the ministry, all of us, 2 Corinthians 5. He's giving us the ministry of reconciliation. Church, it's, this, is, this is our time. 
There's so many reasons to grow weary and lose heart and back away. There's so many reasons. That's why we fix our eyes on Jesus. And we see where's Jesus going? What's Jesus talking about? What's he in the middle of? Am I willing to go where he's going and say what he's saying and do what he's doing? This is our time. This is our inheritance. This is what Jesus has bought for us. Is a, is a, is a, is a bride that's diversified and beautiful and, and, and vibrant that sees its Lord as, 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 as perfect from every angle of culture, from every angle of, of, of experience. Let's run the race marked out for us with perseverance. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's see that the implications of the gospel propel me to go. To see people come to know the Lord and to see the church united under His Lordship. Amen.